0: How many of you have ever taken a spiritual gifts inventory? Yeah, so before there was at least before I'd heard of Enneagram or StrengthsFinder or Myers-Briggs, there was the spiritual gifts inventory and I took one of these when I was in my early 20s and my number one spiritual gift was faith and I felt awesome about that. It just felt more spiritual than all the rest. Well, I was in my early 20s and it led to some trouble because um, I also was, uh, had just gotten married. And um, so there were, there were these moments where I would go to Mandy and suggest something that we should do and it may not have made a lot of sense. And her response, at least in those, um, it, her, her response would be something very rational because that's what she is. And I wouldn't really like that and so my response would be, Mandy, do you remember that we took those spiritual gift inventories and do you remember that my number one spiritual gift was faith? And in, in those first couple years of marriage, or maybe it was the first couple weeks of marriage, I don't remember, um, her response would be, oh, maybe that's God. Um, but then pretty quickly, it became more like, all right, let's calm down, buddy. You and I both know that in four days, you're going to forget about this. So let's just rein it in. And I learned, learned to hopefully do that. As, as I've grown older, I've hopefully grown more wise in that. Um, I've also grown to see that faith is a really, really messy thing. It's not nearly as black and white as I first thought it was. If we go back to this passage, it'll um, be on the screen. This is the beginning of Abraham's story, Genesis 12. It says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. We don't know if this is the first time that Abraham's ever heard from this God, he, but he gets this word. We're not exactly sure what it was like, but it was, it was leave everything you know, and he didn't even tell him where you're going, Right? It's to the land I will show you. When? Tomorrow? I'm, he doesn't get that. But he gets this promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. So I... Um, I mentioned last time I was up here, I love these lectionary teasers. Uh, it gives us four verses, uh, uh, 12 verses one to four A. I can't blame Drew this time on that, um, but I gotta give the props to, I guess it's the Anglican church who comes up with this because what happens when you have four A? It makes you wanna read more of the Bible. Brilliant, right? And so part B is really important. So it's gonna be up here. It says, Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So this isn't some young buck. He's in the the retirement days, the age where you're not just going to hop up and move. There's something we learn, though, a little later that's a really important piece here, and it's that he has no children And it's not like his wife Sarah's 25. She's 65. This whole thing, this promise, um, I'm gonna make an entire nation out of you, seems really far-fetched when you don't have kids. I'm, I'm thinking as I read that, this is something I'm not gonna take to Mandy on this one, right? But, I mean, can you imagine just for a minute that you're Abraham, and how will... Whoever this is speaking to me, make me into a great nation when I have no children. But what does it say he does? Yet Abraham obeys, and he does it. If you've been in church any amount of time, you know how this story ends. We call him Father Abraham, right? We sing the song. Um, From here on, this God is known as the God of Abraham and Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson, uh, three of the world's largest religions look to him as a major player, um, Judaism and Islam and Christianity. This is a big deal, but in this moment, we're faced with the waiting. There's a, there's a passage that in the New Testament that talks a lot about Abraham, and it's uh, Hebrews chapter 11. It's just this one chapter about people who walk by faith, men and women, ordinary people who walk by faith. And verse 1 gives us this definition of faith. It says, it's going to be on the screen, now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This word confidence will come back to, but the word that sticks out to me here is, we do not see. That's the big piece here. We do not see. If you go go on a few more verses later, verse six says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I like this verse and I don't like this verse. I think any time you see a word, it's impossible to do something, it, it, it gives one of two responses. It's either, well, I'll show it, I will try really hard, which often doesn't work, or I'm not even gonna try if something's impossible. But I also love this verse because it talks about there's, there are things that we do that can please God, that bring him pleasure. And one of them is walking by faith whatever exactly that means. And I like rewards. And it says he rewards us. Um, so, gr- so I've been, I've been um, in church as long as I can remember, and growing up, whether this was uh, more implicit than explicit, I kind of grew up feeling like there was faith on one hand and doubt on the other. And you had one or the other. You either had faith, or you had doubt. And it was, it was like um, the goal with, with following God was certainty. You wanted to have faith, not doubt, and you wanted to be certain. I would hear things like, it doesn't matter what comes at me. I'm going to stand firm on my beliefs. You ever heard something like that? I don't, it doesn't matter. I'm going to stand firm. And, and there's something good with that. Like that, I, I think that's a, a great thing, but it can also get us into some trouble, um, because I came away with these this idea that doubt, having questions, was frowned upon by God. It was frowned upon by the church. Questions could get you in trouble. Um, think, but not too much, right? It was almost as if I've got this blanket, and it's got a loose thread, and if I pulled on that one thread, the entire thing could unravel. That's a scary thing, um, that my questions could cause everything to unravel. And I lived a lot of my young adult life that way. I was, in my early 20s, I was really afraid that I was gonna become a heretic. And that's even scarier when you think that you're supposed to be a pastor. (laughs) But that's where I was. Fortunately, the good news is I, I found a group of people that um, encouraged my questions, who who told me that God wasn't threatened by my questions, that he had created me to be inquisitive, and he had given me a heart for people with questions. And I could just ask away, and I would be okay. And that was something I desperately needed to hear at the time. And so I was begin to be less afraid of doubt and less afraid of asking questions. Um, in your bulletin on the back, there's a, a little paragraph, some sentences by a pastor named Greg Boyd. I want to read this. It says, The only way to determine if a belief is true is to rationally investigate it, which means you have to doubt it. It's simply impossible for people to be concerned that their beliefs are true unless they're genuinely open to the possibility that their current beliefs are false. There are no two ways around it, but this is precisely what certainty seeking faith discourages. I said that I was taught, again, maybe implicitly that certainty was the goal, but if you really think about it, Um, certainty is actually the thing that can't go hand in hand with faith. To have true faith means you can't be certain. It actually means that doubt is intertwined with faith. You think about some of the most famous stories in the Bible. Think about Noah, who goes to all these people and says, there's gonna be a flood. What's a flood? Exactly. And you're supposed to build this ginormous boat or think about young David getting ready to fight the giant Goliath, or Mary being visited by an angel who says, you're going to give birth to the Messiah, and then figuring out how in the world you're going to tell your fiance. little doubt in there, huh? How about Zacchaeus, the wee little man climbing up a a tree just risking ridicule just because he wants to see Jesus. Or Indiana Jones, not in the Bible, but still important. Uh, in the last crusade, he's looking for the Holy Grail, and you remember what happens? There's this chasm, giant chasm that he can't jump over, and he's got to get to the other side though and he remembers reading something about a leap of faith and the brother just does this and comes down and sure enough there's a bridge doubt is a part of every one of these stories certain certainty is not i mean even when indiana jones is there like that doesn't make it easy he took that first step it's still not easy. Uh, Peter is one of my favorite guys in the Bible, and there's there's a story that he's maybe most famous for of the stepping out of the boat onto water, not onto land if you didn't know the story, onto water and walking to Jesus. That's, That's a great story. The one that I'm drawn to even more that might be a little more relatable to us is found in John 6. And you don't have to turn there. I'll just tell you the story. At this moment, there are some significant crowds following Jesus. Everywhere Jesus is going, there are more and more people. And these young guys that are with him, Peter, James, John, all these disciples, they have grown up hearing the story about one day the Messiah coming and making everything right, overthrowing Rome's you know, foot on them. And so they gotta be thinking, it's happening. The revolution is happening. There's all these people. Jesus is healing people. He's casting out demons. He's not afraid of Pharisees. He's not afraid of Rome. He's going after it. And there's all of these people. And then Jesus starts talking crazy. About how he's the true bread, and they ought to eat him. Bye, bye, crowds. Dang it, Jesus! If I'm your political advisor, I am not pleased right now. And so then, everybody's gone except Jesus and these this inner circle, these disciples. And he looks at him and says, "Do you want to go too?" And they're all, they're, I can imagine this in the Bible. They're all just looking down at their feet. And they're all thinking it. And they know he knows they're thinking it. But nobody's going to say anything. And then Peter speaks up. He's apt to do that. And he says, Where would we go? You have the words of life. What he means, I think, is we'll shoot. This isn't ending up like we thought it would. But we have come too far. We know too much. You're the Messiah. And it's in this moment that Peter surrenders some of his agenda, some of what he thought this whole thing was going to be about. He surrenders. And there's this humility that you see. And... I bring up humility because I think it goes hand in hand, and it's something else that God is so pleased with. If we think about that, there's um, this passage in James four says, um, "God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble." When you talk, when you think about pride and humility, there's this cycle. Pride is basically us saying, us believing that we're self-sufficient and we don't need God, and what happens? when we go to pride and believe that, it's as if there's a wall. And it's not that God doesn't love us, but there's just this wall, which often makes us become more proud, which then the wall is bigger, and it's the cycle. Flip side, though, is that when we humble ourselves, what we're doing is saying that we are, in fact, not self-sufficient, and we desperately need God in the good times and the bad times. And God can't help himself but drawing near to that. He loves that. It's like when you have a kid who reaches up and needs you. That's one of the best moments as a parent. So God can't help himself, and he comes near, and he brings grace. And then we receive that grace, and it's amazing, and we become even more. We humble ourselves even more in the sight of this awesome God in the cycle just continues and continues. When we are in that place, um, man, it's, that's where the questions come the best. And we don't have to be afraid. And we don't have to be afraid of the Bible. Um, what I always encouraged um, the people in my church was that come with your questions. Don't be afraid of them, but do it in Humility that you don't have it all figured out, and do it in community. Don't do it in isolation. Gather with other people and ask your questions. I mentioned confidence earlier in this passage from Hebrews 11. While we say that certainty isn't the goal and we wanna just kinda push that lie to the side, I do think confidence is a great goal. That as we get into safe places where we can talk about the good, the bad, the ugly of our faith journeys and we can ask the questions um, that we grow in confidence. One, because we learn we're not alone. We're not the only ones who have doubt. We're not the only ones who are struggling. We're not the only ones with questions. So when I think about the life of faith, these are some of the things I think about. Humility, surrender, doubt, struggle. What I know it's not about is getting every decision right. So, and Abraham is a great example of that. In the very next section of chapter 12, they find themselves, they've, they've, they've obeyed. They've gone away. They've gone out from everything that was known. They find themselves in Egypt. And Abraham is, is, is worried that, that Pharaoh is gonna see his smoking hot wife and want her as his own and kill Abraham. And Abraham does not want to, to lose his life And so he says, I got a plan. Tell them that you're my sister, and they'll spare my life. Well, that kind of works. It spares his life. Unfortunately, what doesn't work is Sarah is still taken into the Pharaoh's palace. Well, this was not part of God's plan, and Pharaoh, his entire household, gets very, very sick. So then he realizes he's been duped, and he's angry, and he tells Sarah to go back to her husband, and he kicks him out of Egypt. He should, have, he should have trusted God and told the truth. That's what we learned there. And you would think, well, surely Abraham will learn his lesson, right? Well, he does the exact same thing a few chapters later. Now, I am grateful. I'm grateful that, there's, that, that these stories are in the Bible. They give me hope. Um, I, I, I resonate with the mistakes. I also resonate with the fact that the waiting is so hard. Sometime later, there's still no kid. And Abraham and Sarah are wondering, Sarah's wondering, did my husband make this up? Did he really hear from God? We've left everything. He's got this promise in his mind. And I'm not having a baby. And so she says, let's help God out. I've got this slave Hagar Have a kid with her. Maybe it's just supposed to be you and not through me. He agrees. They have a kid. His name is Ishmael. It's not part of God's plan. The waiting's excruciating. Finally, Isaac's born. Do you know how many years it's been since that initial encounter? 25 years. 25 years. So yes, you've done the math right. Abraham's 100 And Sarah's 90, and they have a baby. His name is Isaac. The promise is fulfilled. Yay. (laughs) But excruciating. Yay, right? Go back to this uh, passage in Hebrews. Kind of just takes several verses and gives us a story again. It says, by faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, I like this, and he as good as dead, love to be described as that. (laughs) And he as good as dead came descendants, here it is, as numerous as stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now maybe you can end up here and be excited uh, at the way this story turns out. I mean, I'm encouraged by this story but I also feel the pain of 25 years of waiting, of uncertainty, of questioning, of unknown, of of questioning, did I make all this up? Can you imagine how many times Abraham said that over 25 years? Did I make all of this up? And here's what I continue to learn. It is in the waiting in the darkness, in the uncertainty, in the unknown, that God does his absolute best work in our lives. You see it in Abraham, you see it in Peter, you see it in David. Um, Almost two years ago, I started a sabbatical, uh, which is what we give pastors sometimes. I started a three-month sabbatical, and and I kicked it off, this was almost two years ago, at a at a Catholic retreat center about an hour away from here for a, um, a silent retreat. I'd never done a silent retreat before. I was attempting to, dis- to discern if God was calling me to step out of vocational ministry. Um, I had started a church 10 years earlier. It was going well, but I was just sensing that maybe my role was finished, that I was, I was done with my part. But it was such a huge decision And so I was taking this time, and specifically this quiet, to just be in a space to hear from God, get some discernment. So I'd never done one of these; didn't know what to do. Um, Did a lot of wandering around. It was awesome, but it was hard. But I remember this first end of the first day, stumbling into this library at this retreat center as a Catholic. Um, retreat center, so I didn't know a lot of the authors, but I saw um, a few books by Richard Rohr, and I was like, okay, I know who he is, and um, so I picked up this little book um, called Everything Belongs. It was the first, I actually read it then. Um, It was actually a small book. I recognize now it's one of those, you've probably had these, these right time, right place books, because I've tried to read more of Richard Rohr, and he's tough, Um, but this was spot on, I was in that place. And he, at one point, he speaks about liminal space. Have you ever heard of that? Liminal space is, it's, it's when you're in a place of transition or waiting, unknown. I've got um, a little bit of what, what Roar says about it on the, on the screen. He says, all transformation takes place in liminal space. We have to move out of business as usual and remain on the threshold, lemon and Latin, where we are betwixt and between. There the old world is left behind, but we're not sure of the new one yet. That's a good space. Get there often and stay as long as you can by whatever means possible. It's the realm where God can best get at us because we are out of the way. In sacred space, the old world is able to fall apart and the new world is able to be revealed. If we don't find liminal space in our lives, we start idolizing normalcy. We end up believing it's the only reality and our lives shrivel. Some native peoples call liminal space crazy time. It's time where nothing looks like what we're used to, like the time after the death of someone you love. I believe that is uniquely the work of religion to lead us into crazy time. Religion should lead us into that space and deconstruct the old normal world. Much of my criticism of religion comes about when I see it not only affirming the system of normalcy, but teaching folks how to live there comfortably. There's a lot I could say from that, Um, my, my personality has always been that I've embraced change. I've taken change really well. That's the whole, that whole spiritual gifts thing with faith. It's just the fact that I can do change pretty well. What I've never done well, though, is waiting. I don't know anybody that does waiting well. Waiting's terrible. I, we're in the season of Lent. Lent is about waiting. It's about slowing. It's about being in that space and being okay You think about Holy Saturday. What a day of waiting that was. The day between death and resurrection. Here's what I know for certain. It's that the most important time of change and transformation in our lives comes in the midst of waiting. In the midst of unknown. It's for me, it's when I had no idea what I was doing. And I did not like it. But I can look back on those moments now, and see that those were the moments where God did His best work in my life. It's not fun. I love that Richard Rohr says it's a good space, and get there as often as you can. And I don't know if I, (laughs) if I'm gonna go there with him, but like I know it's true. I know it's true. None of us willingly choose it, but we all go through it, and it's how we go. We've got one more passage I want to look at. It's one of the passages that um, I memorized long ago, and it's just always stayed with me. It's from James chapter 1. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) To have a life that's marked by no lack. And what that means is that you have character and you have maturity that knows who God is and how you remember how God has gotten you through the last time of unknown and so you can You can handle it differently than you once did because God is making you more like Jesus who knew how to handle stuff. I I was recently reminded this author uh, that I really like, he's passed away now, Dallas Willard. He was once asked, give one word to describe Jesus. And the guy that was asking him figured he'd say loving or powerful or something like that. He said relaxed. I love that that Jesus was relaxed. God wants to do that in us, and he uses these trials and these times of waiting and unknown to make us more like his son. It's a good space to be in. So um, I want to end. We, uh, If you're new, we always have a time of, of worship at the end and of communion, and... And the reason is just so the things that we've heard and experienced today that we have some time to just sit, to be still, to wait. Um, I imagine that there's some folks here that are going through times of waiting, transition of unknown. Um, maybe it's not 25 years, but it feels like it. Maybe it is 25 years. I don't know. The thing I want to remind you of is something that Robin talked about a few weeks ago is just that God is near. And that he's loving. And especially in these moments, especially in these moments, he wants to draw near to you. To just be close and to bring help. You you may also be here and the thing that's kind of running through your mind is the fact that Christianity just doesn't work for you like maybe it once did. You resonate with the questions, the doubt. Maybe there's fear. Maybe you're worried that you've deconstructed a lot and you're wondering if anything's actually left to build on. Um, with that, I would say the same thing is God is near and he's, he's okay with where you are. Um, he's okay with your questions. He's okay with your doubts. He's okay with your fear and your frustration, your anger. He's near. Um, we'll also during the communion time, we'll have people um, on the left and right that that are there to pray for you. If you've kind of, you know, one of the things I was also thinking about is something Jamin said a couple of weeks ago when he was talking out of Deuteronomy that there are deeds that lead to life, there are deeds that lead to death. You know, maybe God whispered something to you recently or a while back that you just haven't obeyed. Maybe it was something little, maybe it was something big. And I just encourage you, if something's come to your mind, Maybe it's a deed that leads to life. Maybe it's something that God is just inviting you into, into a small baby step of obedience. Just wanna encourage you. If you are looking for a place um, to ask your questions, I would be amiss if I didn't invite you to Alpha since I'm a part of it. We just started last week. And um, it's just a safe place to dialogue. And it's a safe place to be with others who have questions and doubts. So it's at five, from five to seven on Sunday nights. We have uh, childcare, we have a meal together. So I wanna invite you uh, to that. Uh, let me pray for us and um, we'll move into our time of communion. Uh, God, I'm grateful for your presence and I'm grateful um, for your love and for your uh, patience with us and um, God, the way that you've created us to be really complex, um, to have uh, to ha- to have questions, and that you're okay with it. So, God, I pray that uh, you would um, just draw close to uh, us this morning as we move into our time of communion and worship. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.